this week I began to uh, look into uh, a scene I remember from a movie, and I don't remember the exact movie, but in this scene it was uh, World War I, and there was the, the militaries, are, they're fighting and battling against each other, and there's a, a, a moment that happens on a Christmas day. And it, so I began to look that up and say, is that really real? Are those stories just made up? And uh, began to look at this Christmas truce that affected possibly 100,000 troops at that time. And there was, it was in 1914. And as I began to read through journal uh, entries of some of the soldiers and what was experienced that day, this one stood out to me. It describes what happened. This guy named Graham Williams, and he was a part of the 5th London Rifle Brigade. Here's what he writes about Christmas on 1914 in the battlefield during World War I. He said, first the Germans would sing one of their carols, and then we would sing one of ours until we had started up, O come all ye faithful. The Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words of Adeste Fidelis. And I thought, well, this is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. And that moment there that they had together, however many hours that lasted, uh, and what they did and sang songs and talked to each other and exchanged, there was this truce that happened for a few hours in the midst of a terrible war, which estimates are possibly 17 million soldiers and civilians lost their life, maybe even more than that. People who had become so hardened by seeing what was going on, and yet in this moment, Christmas Day, 1914, there was a moment of peace in which the soldiers stopped fighting. It'd be great if that was what the war ended that moment, but there was much more battle to, have, to follow and much more death and much more trouble. But I thought about that truce this week, and I thought about the word peace, and I thought about what do we describe peace as? What would you give as a description of peace if I asked you? Or what do, would your neighbor or a co-worker or someone else say? What does the world say that peace is? I began to look up different peacekeeping organizations in this world, and I went to a number of their websites this week and began to read. They say that they're for world peace. What are they doing, or what do they believe about peace? Right on the front pages, here's some of the definitions of what they say peace is. One said, for me, peace is happiness. Another, peace is building relationships in the community. Another one said, peace is to live in harmony to live without fear, fear that someone will kill or harm you. Another organization said peace means the recognition of life in every living entity in the ecosystem and recognition that each element sustains the other and so work towards protecting the survival of each other. Another said peace represents the orientation of love towards the general good. Another said, peace means living in a state where your impact on others is only ever seen as positive. If everybody does that, peace will happen. And then I came to this one called World Peace Initiative, and they were very specific about what they def defined as peace and what they were doing to bring about world peace. They say this, since wars begin in the minds of men, it is in the minds of men that defenses of peace must be constructed. And they go on to say, we feed, cleanse, 
and purify the mind so that thoughts, speech, and actions are ethically constructed. With such a goal, we offer to deliver the roadmap to true peace, ultimate happiness, and inner wisdom to every human being. And they say the answer to world peace is self-development and meditation. What I found troubling in every one of these peacekeeping movements is none of them gave the true answer to peace. Not one of them gave any hope, as I read any of those things, that world peace would even happen, or world peace or peace at all would happen in a person's life. Even the one that talked about self-development, there's still trouble at hand. And so we ask the question, what is peace? Or maybe we should say, what is the story of peace when we gather at this time and look to the book of Isaiah? The big idea for us this morning is this, as we look at peace. Peace with God Almighty is found only in the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. If you look at Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to read verse 6 for us, a very familiar passage of Scripture, even for those who don't attend churches or don't read the Bibles, but read the Bible, but they will hear this Christmas uh, hymn or song, and these verses are used. And so for many of you, you know this, you have it memorized. Isaiah writes this, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you. We praise your name. We lift you on high for giving us the greatest gift ever given. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who is able to bring peace to our hearts. And Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that you would reveal to us truth from a very familiar passage that many of us have seen Christmas after Christmas after Christmas. Speak to our hearts. Make your truth anew in us and continue to give us the peace that surpasses all understanding. Father, would you use uh, this time and bless the reading and the preaching of the word. Give me the words to preach for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look to this passage in Isaiah, it's like the passage we saw in Micah last week. There is a man of God, he's a prophet that God has commanded to go and speak to the nation of Israel. This is about 700 to 750 years before the first Christmas, before the birth of Christ. And so during this time, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying and speaking God's word. And he speaks to the nation of Israel just like Micah, which we saw in chapter 5 last week. He prophesies judgment for God's people. And he also prophesies restoration to come uh, and follow. The nation of Israel at this time is in a place of, in a time of no peace. They are surrounded by world powers. You have Assyria to the north, Egypt to the south, Babylon to the east, and the Mediterranean Ocean to the west. And so there's nowhere to flee from their enemies, and there's only trouble that abounds. And God tells them through the prophets, you are going to face judgment. 
And the reason for that is because they've departed from God and His Word and following and worshiping the only true God. And they've turned to worshiping idols. And they've turned to worshiping these false gods of other nations. And therefore, God prophesies, judgment will come. You will be taken into captivity. But one day, their restoration will come. When you read the book of Isaiah, it's a very large book in the Old Testament And it prophesies about a divine king that would come. It prophesies about a suffering servant. And it also prophesies about an anointed conqueror. And as you read through Isaiah, you go, well, there's three different people it's talking about. But the reality, we find it here in today's text, is it's about one person. So let's look at this one person. And the first thing that we see is that this is a child who is a gift. Look at verse 6 of Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. You need to circle, highlight, and underline the word us. There is something that is given not just to the nation of Israel, but to God's people today, and it is in a child. It is a son who is given. Isaiah prophesies that this child is one that would be given, and yet he's the son of God, and that he is one who would save. And therefore, when we look to the manger, we look to the child that's born, and we look to this word salvation that comes from that child. It's important when you look at this child that's given, that this child is a human. This child is a boy. This child grows up and becomes a man. Because without the child being fully human, then we have a problem when we look farther down in the text for today. In Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us this of the child. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And if you look at that verse and read what the Apostle Paul says, about this child in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He says this, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This child that was given, this son that was given, comes as a man to experience every single weakness that man experiences, from sickness to temptation to the trouble in this world, this child that's given must come and experience what we experience to be the greatest gift that is ever given to anyone. And the reason that this is the greatest gift is because we're reminded in John 3.16, which says, you know that verse, John 3.16? For God so loves the world that He gave His only Son, right? That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves you and God loves me so greatly with so much love that He would give His only Son the greatest gift ever to be given. 
I don't know how you're preparing for Christmas, and I don't know if you're wondering if you're going to have money for gifts, or if you're buying gifts, or you're making gifts, or you're, you can't wait for the gifts to be given. But when you compare any gift that any of us could ever give, it's nothing compared to this child who is a gift. And if you look at our text, it says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. You see, this child reigns as the king of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and the government, the entire world uh, government is upon his shoulders. And in a sense, you can think of it this way. Jesus Christ, after he died on the cross and rose again before he ascended to heaven, he was with his disciples and he gave the disciples a charge, which is the same charge to you today, if you're a follower of him, to go and tell the world of this greatest gift, Jesus Christ this gift given. But one of the things he says just before he gives them that commission is this. Matthew 28, 18. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, you and I cannot go in the name of God with the mission he's given us unless he's given us the authority to do so. And God the Father has given this child that was born all the authority. And therefore, all the governments of this world, all the leaders of this world, all that would come against uh, in this, in, and lead in this place are all under the true authority of this child who is given as a gift. But we want to know and t- we want to notice and pay attention to the names that are given to this child. Look at with me at this second point. This child is not only a child who is a gift, but he's a child who is wiser than man. How many of you would say that when you were a child, you made at times some foolish decisions? Anyone? Some of you say, hey, I do that as an adult. But if you watch children, sometimes they make a foolish decision. We need wisdom. I wonder who you call when you need wisdom. Who's that person or who are those people? Who are those people that you gather together when you need wisdom? I was thankful that Vaughn joined us on Thursday night because he'd missed, or Tuesday night, because he'd last, missed the last few elders meetings. And, and this elders meeting this uh, last Tuesday, we wanted the whole team there because we needed to approve uh, next year's budget. And you need the counsel and the wisdom of many. And so we were able to gather and in the wisdom of many after praying over what God would have us do and the, the finances that the church gives and is entrusted to our care, we were able to make a decision and approve and a budget there. But we were seeking out and asking God for spiritual wisdom in that. Look at the description of the child in verse 6, and it says, And his name shall be called, what? Wonderful Counselor. This child would have the divine wisdom of God. This child would be the wisest man to ever live. You say, well, wait, the Bible says King Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. Well, as we'll see here in just a moment, this child that grows up, becomes a man, has divine wisdom because he's also God. If you look back in Isaiah here where we're at, Isaiah also describes in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, he says this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, don't forget, Isaiah is prophesying of the same person. 
He's speaking of this child here in chapter 11 saying that the spirit of wisdom and knowledge would rest upon him. Well, if you jump forward 700 years later after Isaiah prophesies this, you have Jesus who comes upon the scene and he goes to John the Baptist, a cousin, a relative of his, and he's baptized in the water. And as Jesus comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit of God descends upon Jesus Christ in the form of a dove. When you read Luke chapter 4, after that baptism, Jesus goes into a synagogue. He just happens to pick up the scroll of Isaiah. He just happens to come to the point to read what Isaiah said about this child whom the Holy Spirit would come upon and the wisdom would be given, the wisdom of God. Jesus reads that before the people, closes the scroll, sits down and says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the child, that wonderful counselor who his, his understanding and his wisdom is beyond human understanding. Our greatest wisdom, the wisest people in this world, their wisdom does not compare to the wisdom of Jesus. This next year, we will be looking at the book of Luke. And when you read what Jesus teaches, when he walked this earth and the wisdom and the counsel he gave, it's amazing and it's astounding and it says it's wonderful because not one human could come up with the things that Jesus taught and gave counsel to many. So I ask you, who are you seeking counsel from today? There is a great counselor, a wonderful counselor, and you need to call on him and it's the child who Isaiah says. In Isaiah chapter 28, in verse 29, he also says this. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. I want to know that counselor. I want to know that wisdom. Because I know that at times I make decisions in this world that lead me astray from the way that God would have. And I need that divine counsel from above. The next description we have in verse 6 it says, of this child, it says that he is God Almighty. Look at verse 6. The third thing we see is a child who is God Almighty. Verse 6 says, mighty God. Well, Isaiah also says of this child in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Does that sound familiar to you this month? We sing that song, Emmanuel, which means God with us. You hear it on the radio. You sing it out. You see those, those uh, you know, all kinds of decorations everywhere you go and in the stores, Emmanuel, God with us. Us And yet Isaiah, speaking of the child to be born, says here that, the, that he is God. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, we see that same passage being used again. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you haven't read all of Matthew chapter 1 there, well, that's quoted because Mary is going to give birth to this son. 
but she's a virgin, and it's a miraculous thing that the Holy Spirit does and therefore fulfills what was prophesied 700 to 750 years before this moment. And the acknowledgement is clear that this child to be born is God with us. Isaiah is describing to us what we call the incarnation, that God becomes fully man. And at the same time, we have these wonderful descriptions which say Jesus is not only fully man, but he's also fully God. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. When you look at Isaiah, this passage and the name given of the child, it's the same name of God throughout the Old Testament. It's the same Hebrew word that is used to describe God, and it's ascribed to this child, mighty God. It's the same word used in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, which says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. This is the same name used of this child in Isaiah that we're looking at in chapter 9 today. And it's the same description that's given to the child born in the manger uh, hundreds of years later to this virgin Mary in the city of Bethlehem that we read in Micah chapter 5 last week. This child is the greatest warrior because he's God and is the one who has defeated the powers of Satan, sin, and death. But look at verse 6 there. A child who is God Almighty is titled with the name Mighty God and the name to follow that everlasting what? Father. You go, wait a minute. How can a child, go back to the verse here, he's a son. Wait a minute. He's God here. He's a counselor. Wait, he's everlasting. Father, what, what is this jumble of names? Some of people might think, well, it doesn't really fit. How does all this work together? Everlasting Father, or your version may say Father of Eternity. And you say, how can he be a child, a son, and the Father, and the son? all these things here? And what this points to is a glorious truth in the Word of God, is you have what we studied a while back, the Godhead of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's all summed up in this description of the child. That He is the Father, that He is the Son, that He is the Holy Spirit, that you have this uh, great description of this child to be born. But I'm thankful for this term, everlasting Father. A Father who loves us greatly, a Father who cares for us, a Father who uh, would give the greatest gift to His children. John chapter 14, verse 18, Jesus says to His disciples, um, Speaking of the Holy Spirit that would be coming, he says, he's telling them he's going to leave. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I remember my, one of my grandmothers telling me um, that when she was young, her and her sister and two brothers, uh, their family uh, split up and uh, her and her sister and her brothers found themselves in different orphanages and her not knowing her father, and the great struggle and anger and frustration with a father to not be found. And I find comfort 
when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. You see, our God is a loving God that has adopted us when we come to faith in Christ as his own children. And it's a wonderful thing to know that we're not left as orphans to try to find our own way. I want to encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 1 this week as Hebrews chapter 1 sums up everything that Isaiah says in this verse in the description of Jesus Christ. And so when you look at this child uh, that is given this great gift and you see that he is the wonderful counselor that is wiser than a man, that he is uh, God Almighty, when you look at these names, they, they lead up and they build. And if you like to listen to uh, maybe music orchestra pieces or uh, actually if you, or even worship songs that we sing or music you listen to, even the most quietest piece of music, Most music always has what's called a crescendo. And there's a point or a peak of a song. And as the music is being played or the words are being sung or the orchestra is playing or the band is playing there, it comes to a point where there's a crescendo, a high point of the song. And it's like this as we hear these words, a description of this child, of the wonderful counselor and the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and all of those lead so that the greatest description is that this child is the Prince of Peace. And that's the last thing we see here in the text is that there is a child that is given here who will end the war. The Prince of Peace. And this title, the Prince of Peace, should be one of our most cherished names of this child because of what he does for you and I. The name Prince of Peace is actually at the center of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that what Christ has done has brought peace to, between man and between God Jesus is the only one who can bring peace to your soul in the midst of the storms of this life. Some of you need to stop right now and reflect and think about your last day, your last week, your last year, or over your lifetime to think, what is the chaos? What is the trouble? What is the darkness that I have been in? And there has not been peace in my life. Those of you who found that peace in the sun need to also reflect and think about what is the chaos in my life that has so distracted me that I've lost sight of the fact that I have peace through this work that Jesus Christ has done. But Jesus is the only one who can bring peace between you and God. If you didn't realize this, when you were born into this world, you're born into a war zone, and it's you against God. You are an enemy of God Almighty because of your sin. And I've had some people this year, because I repeatedly say that, they're like, you're too harsh to say that we're enemies of God. It's not my words. It's God's word. We are told that we are enemies of God because of sin, and we have sinned against Him. So take up that argument with God and not with me. But it's the reality of our life and the only peace that can be brought between you and between God is through Jesus Christ. If you have read the biographies that have been written about John Bunyan, you'll read that in his earlier years of life, 
he was tormented by dreams of going to hell and burning and burning. And he was tormented repeatedly over and over. And that guy, John Bunyan, as a young man, he tormented other people, children, adults. And he was in the midst of chaos. And he had no peace whatsoever. And when you read his story, there's a day that comes and it's a fascinating thing. When he comes to the point of where he comes to peace with God, it's through the work of the Holy Spirit in his life and he hears the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, dying for him in his place, shedding his blood so he could be forgiven. And when he comes to faith, that peace that floods his soul and the description of his rest of his life is only the fact that the Prince of Peace worked that in his life. Some of you have experienced that. Maybe there's some of you that have not. But Jesus is the only one who can end the war between you and God Almighty and bring fellowship where you can enter in with the God who loves you and that He calls you His child because He's our Father. Again, as we saw last week, Micah chapter 5 says that this son is a ruler and that he shall be their peace. And Luke chapter 1, verse 79 says this, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus is the author of peace. Our world, turn on the news this week and someone will talk about if we only did this, we would have world peace. And they don't realize that they are wasting their breath are wasting their energy. It doesn't matter what person comes on the scene. There will be no true peace until Jesus puts away the enemy for good. That also means that those who reject Christ remain enemies and they too will be put away for all eternity. The wonderful thing for you and I today is that if we have faith in Christ our Lord. He is our Prince of Peace now. And if you're struggling with sickness, disease, lack of money, trouble in your workplace, schoolwork you're worried about, no matter what, you can have peace in the midst of a troubled world. And Jesus said there would be trouble. But He has us here to fulfill His mission of telling people that they too can have peace Turn with me to one more passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 14. It says this of Jesus. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Just over a week ago, our family was in California visiting family and we were visiting um, the city of Montebello where I was serving at before, and we gathered at a bakery there, a very large bakery. It's always filled with people, literally hundreds of people in this place, and there's a line out the door the whole time you're there. We're there for four hours, and we're trying to connect with 
uh, brothers and sisters of Christ at the last church that we were at, and people were coming during that time. And, and I'll just be honest, I enjoyed seeing the people, but I just felt like chaos the whole time. We're on the sidewalk outside in this outdoor area. And there's, it's downtown uh, Downey, California, and there's two lanes going this way and two lanes going that way, and cars are honking the horns and blasting. There's music playing. There's people all over. You're trying to talk to everyone. And I just like, I didn't feel at ease until we got into the car. We closed the door. There's no music. It's just like a moment of silence. You're like, ah. Maybe that's why I like living in Montana. It's a little bit quieter here. But as I thought about that, and I thought about this text, praying for you, wondering, how much distraction is in your life today? And if you're a believer, I'm talking to you right now. What is so distracting you that you're forgetting the peace that you have in your soul that Jesus has made possible through the work of the Holy Spirit? And you're so caught up right now with what you're going to do for Christmas. You're so caught up with vacation time. You're so caught up with, are there going to be gifts? You're so caught up with, am I going to have a job next year? You're so caught up with, am I going to be alive in a few weeks because of my illness? And you're a believer. I remind you of the Prince of Peace and the peace that he's already given you in the midst of this world. Maybe, just maybe, some of the distractions are overtaking because you're departing from the Word of God. And what I mean by that is the farther we get away from the Word of God, sometimes the clearer that peace is in our hearts. Because as we read the Word of God, the Holy Spirit teaches us, reminds us of the truth, of the peace we have in our souls through Jesus Christ. And if you are here and You've never had peace. Today is the day to ask the Prince of Peace for peace that surpasses all understanding. But I want you to think about this passage in Isaiah. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't know if you've ever witnessed this before, but sometimes you go to um, a service uh, or you see something where the military is gathered and they've gathered up a whole bunch of artillery to give a salute of some type. And you see them firing off the artillery or firing off those guns. And, and with each fire, it's just a loud crack and it's a loud reminder. And when I think of this passage in Isaiah, I think of that like this firing of a salute. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. When you look to the child born in the manger that we are reminded of this Christmas, think of those names and those titles. As the worship team comes forward, think about the part of the story in which the shepherds were out in the field the night that the Christ is born. And they're told by an angel, the Savior, the child that was promised, has been born. And there's an angel there, and it's been silent. They're out there in the fields, and it's quiet. But then all of a sudden, there are thousands of angels that show up. We always think they're singing because we have it with song. It doesn't say they're singing. It just says that they say in unison, thousands of voices, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace 
among those with whom he is pleased. Father, I pray that this morning that you would be pleased with us, that your spirit would fall upon our lives in a mighty and powerful way, that we would in this instant have peace in our souls. Would you let the things of this world and the trouble of our hearts fall away? Let the distractions be moved from our eyes. And would we focus on you, Jesus, given for us. And you gave of yourself the greatest gift of salvation by giving up your life. Father, would you call those who are far from you without peace this morning? Would you call them to you and change them and make them new people? Change them from being an enemy of yours to a child of yours. And Father, would you encourage and strengthen all the believers at this time of year to trust in you and have that peace in their hearts. In Jesus' name.